Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. And on this edition, we'll talk about prime numbers and quantum stuff. But first up, here's the news with Mark West. Pedestrians who talk on a mobile phone are slower, change direction more, have difficulty navigating, and are less likely to notice obvious distractions like a unicycling clown. Researchers at Western Washington University observed 317 pedestrians as they crossed the main square of the campus along the 114-metre-long diagonal pathway. The people observed were either talking on a mobile phone, listening to a personal music player, in conversation with another pedestrian, or walking alone without any, without any electronic devices. The researchers noted the time it took them to cross the square, whether they stopped, zigzagged or stumbled, how many times they changed direction, and whether they collided with another person, or nearly did. The pedestrians were also monitored to see if they noticed the unusual stimulus the researchers had placed just off the walking path, the brightly coloured unicycling clown. Unicyclists are very rare on campus pathways, said one of the authors of the study, which will be published in the December issue of Applied Cognitive Psychology. Only 25% of people using their mobile phones noticed the clown, while more than half of the people in the other groups noticed him. Failure to see the clown could not be blamed on the use of an electronic device per se, because 61% of people using a music player saw the unicyclist. It couldn't be blamed on having a conversation either. Chatting couples were the most likely, at 71%, to see the clown. Instead, the study suggests that mobile phone users fail to notice what is going on around them, a phenomenon called inattentional blindness. This means that they may miss more than the unicycling clown and experience difficulty recognising and using information needed to navigate through a complex and changing environment, the authors said. They go on to write that this might not be overly dangerous when walking in a pedestrian zone, but can be when bikes or cars are introduced into the equation, or the mobile phone user is driving. Taking a deep breath and relaxing may help women undergoing IVF treatment to become pregnant sooner, according to a study coming out of the US. For years, women seeking to get pregnant have been advised by friends and family to stop stressing about it, an idea that not all obstetricians and gynaecologists have embraced. But research presented at a meeting of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine in Atlanta suggests there may actually be something to this. Dr. Alice Domar, who runs a fertility clinic in Boston and also works at Harvard Medical School, found that women who took part in a stress management program while having a second round of assisted fertility treatment had a greater chance of falling pregnant than women getting IVF alone. Reproductive health experts have long wondered about the impact that stress may have on fertility, thus impending a woman's ability to conceive, said Domar. 
This study suggests that stress management may improve pregnancy rates, minimizing the stress of fertility management itself, improving the success rates of IVF procedures, and ultimately helping to alleviate the emotional burden for women who are facing challenges trying to conceive. A piece of wet, salty paper doesn't look very impressive, but cut it up, stack it up, and it can hold an impressive amount of energy. With this in mind, scientists in Sweden have created a salt and paper battery that can hold up to one volt of electricity. The scientists hope their battery will one day power remote biodegradable sensors. We wanted to make a battery that was very simple and used the same material for both electrodes, said Professor Leif Nyholm of Uppsala University in Sweden and co-author of a study that appeared in the journal Nano Letters, presumably quite a small journal. To make it simple, we just put NaCl, table salt, in. The battery is as thin as a single piece of paper, but it is made up of multiple layers of cellulose, coated in a conductive polymer 50 nanometers thick, and sandwiched between layers of filter paper. Water conducts the chlorine ions to the negative electrode, and electrons to the positive electrode. The whole flexible assembly, several millimeters thick, is wrapped in plastic. The initial salt and paper battery prototype can generate one volt of energy. Stacking more layers should provide more voltage, says Nyholm. Gram for gram, the salt and pepper battery isn't as powerful as its thin film cousins that use lithium, cobalt or nickel, but it does charge faster. The salt and paper battery won't be used to power a laptop or a cell phone, but its environmentally friendly components will more likely be used for fabrics that heat up or remote sensors that monitor temperature or humidity. And finally, something that's on the tip of all of our tongues, researchers in the US have found that consuming carbonated drinks activates the sour-sensing cells on your tongue. In an article published in the journal Science, the researchers speculate that the ability to taste carbonation may have evolved as a reaction to help humans avoid foods that are going off and have begun fermenting. They claim that sour and bitter tastes often indicate that foods should be avoided, while sweet, salty and the savoury taste sensation called umami are those that can be beneficial. The research follows recent work showing that fruit flies can taste carbon. Unlike humans, fruit flies sense the taste of carbon dioxide as an encouragement, indicating the presence of growing microorganisms. The latest research, led by Dr. Jairaham Chandrasekhar of the University of California, San Diego, was done using genetically engineered mice. Sensory scientist Dr. Hannah Williams of Curtin University of Technology in Perth says that the research is likely to help drink manufacturers to better manipulate the flavour of new products. It's about the understanding of how carbonation affects flavour perceptions, he says. The application of it is in understanding where your flavours are coming from. Thanks to Mark West and ABC Science News. Now, that inattention of mobile phone users and their inability to see unicycles and clowns reminds me a little bit of the research being done on what happens when we actually use the phone. If you think about it, when you use the phone, any phone, even an old landline telephone, you're talking to someone that you can't see, someone who's not in the room with you, which is not something we evolved to do. It's actually it little bit hard because you don't get any feedback from their face. So it's, I mean, it's something we can all do, but it's a little bit harder. And I think maybe that's why people are in a different 
state of consciousness where they are not totally paying attention to the present because they're projecting themselves into an imaginary space where they can talk to their to their friend, family, whoever on the other end of the line, which is where some of the original ideas of cyberspace came from. It's that place you are when you're on the phone. And, of course, the story of relaxing for IVF uh, once again confirms the power of the mind over the reproductive organs. And the salt-powered batteries, of course, rely on a polymer. I'm wondering where the polymer comes from. How green is their plastic? The bubbles in the drink, why we like sour and salty tastes. Reminds me of Groucho Marx's line, time flies like an arrow and fruit flies like a banana. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, Mark will explain prime numbers and give us a word from mathematician Terence Tao. Terence Tao is a professor at the Department of Mathematics, UCLA, and one of Australia's most acclaimed mathematicians. Indeed, he is arguably the world's greatest living mathematician. In 2006, he was awarded the Fields Medal, which is the top prize a mathematician can win. And at 24, he became the youngest ever full professor at UCLA. I recently went to Tao's Clay Mahler lecture at UNSW, which was a fascinating look at prime numbers. And after his speech, I managed to catch up with him for a brief chat. But first off, what are prime numbers? Prime numbers are integers that can only be divided by themselves and 1. For example, the number 10 can be divided by 1, 2, 5 and 10, whilst the number 11 can only be divided by 1 and 11. So 11 is a prime. The first few primes are 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, 19, 23, 29, 31, 37, 41 and so on. One of the interesting things about the primes is that there is no known formula yielding all of them. You can't simply plug a few numbers into a formula to generate a list of the primes. However, on a large scale, their distribution can be modelled. The primes behave as if they are distributed pseudo-randomly. You might have noticed that there seemed to be some pattern in the differences between the primes that I listed earlier. However, you can't really predict them. The prime number theorem says that the probability of a given number n being prime is inversely proportional to its logarithm. Euclid proved that there are infinitely many prime numbers way back in 300 BC. The current largest known prime was discovered in 2008 by the distributed computing project the Great Internet Mersenne Prime Search, and this prime has 12,978,189 digits or, if you like, 2 to the power of 43,112,609 minus 1. Primes are very important for public key cryptography. That is, the way your credit card numbers are encrypted in online transactions. The cryptography makes use of the fact that it is difficult to factorise large numbers into their prime factors, whilst it is comparatively easy to multiply two large primes together. No efficient integer factorization algorithm is currently known. In 2005, a 193-digit number was factorized, but it took five months. And remember, our largest prime number at the moment has almost 13 million digits, not just 193. So imagine trying to get a hold of that number. 
Terence Tao, along with Ben Green, proved that the sequence of prime numbers contains arbitrarily long arithmetic progressions. This is the Green-Tau theorem. What this means is that for any number k, there is an arithmetic progression of primes k long. An arithmetic progression is one in which the difference between two numbers in the progression is the same. For example, the series 2, 4, 6, 8, 10 is an arithmetic progression with common difference 2. Green and Tau proved that such sequences exist within the primes for any length of series you want. For example, the series 3, 7, 11 is a prime sequence of length 3 with common difference 4. The series 3, 5, 7 is length 3 with common difference 2. The current record is a series of 25 primes. OK, now to the interview I had with Terence Tau. What got you interested in prime number research in the first place and uh, what interests you in it? Uh, so it's something I've always been interested in since a high school student. I mean, it's, uh, there's always very simple statements that are very easy to state, but people haven't proven. And that always that, you know, intrigued me. Like, uh, there should be some way to do it. And, uh, but I, 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 wasn't, uh, I didn't know enough about the subject to, to, to get anywhere until, um, until very recently. I, I studied some other parts of mathematics for a long time. So I only started getting into it actually because of a friend of mine, um, uh, uh, we started collaborating and he was a number theorist. And so we got together and we started doing some number theory. Um, but yeah, it's always, it's, always been, it's always been my dream to, to, to do something in number theory. So I'm very happy I can actually get somewhere now. And you've got the, uh, the Green-Tau theorem. In 20 words or less, what's all that about? The theorem says that inside the prime numbers you can find a certain type of pattern, an arithmetic progression. As long, uh, well, of, as, of, of as long a length as you wish. There are, uh, somewhere out there there's a million primes in arithmetic progression. I can't tell you where they are, but I know that they exist. That's just what we show. So like 3, 5 and 7, or uh, 3, 7 and 11, like that. And that's where my interview unfortunately ended, all one and a half minutes in. Being the amateur journalist that I am, the batteries in my digital recorder ran out. See, this is what happens when amateur journalists meet the world's greatest living mathematician. So if you're interested in any more information about prime numbers, I recommend the book The Music of the Primes by British author Marcus de Soto. It details the story of the Riemann hypothesis, which is considered by many to be the most important unresolved problem in mathematics. A solution to the Riemann hypothesis could make an immense contribution to our understanding of the distribution of prime numbers. And you certainly don't need to be a maths geek to understand this book. It's a great historical tale. My personal suspicion is that one day Terence Tao may have a pretty good crack at the Riemann hypothesis, as it is one of the most important problems in number theory. And as Terence Tao is arguably our greatest living number theorist, I think there might be further progressions in this field. Stay tuned. So prime numbers are the basis of our cryptographic system at the moment, Mark. Yes, it sort of works by the it works because of the fact that you can take two prime numbers together and you can multiply them. So you multiply these two prime numbers, and whilst that might be a difficult computation, it can be done reasonably simple using our modern computers to get a big number, and this big number could have 150 digits. But you take that big number without knowing anything about it, and it's exceptionally difficult to actually break it down into its primes. So this is sort of how um, uh, internet or public key cryptography works, is that that big number is actually known that's public. Any internet hacker or just someone going to a credit card site can see that number, uh, and that number is used to encrypt your, your credit card number. But you can't actually break it down into its primes. You don't know 
what it's made up of. It's, well, you, you can figure it out, but it may take you months, years using current technology. Well, in fact, my understanding is it's so computationally difficult that if you use enough bits to, if you use, a, I mean, the bit rate used on credit cards isn't that high because it's based on basically 1990s technology. But if you arbitrarily choose a large one, if you're doing public key encryption, then by current technology, it could take to the end of the universe to right. actually factor the primes that have made up this large number. So it's really hard. But the problem is people are also working on quantum computers and quantum computers go through every possible solution simultaneously. At, well, they go through every possible state and every state representing a possible solution. And then when you look at them, they collapse to just the right answer within milliseconds. So you would actually, if you had a quantum computer and you were an intelligence agency, you'd be able to read everybody's secret messages all around the world. And of course, this has been a problem for, well, for thousands of years. People have wanted, particularly governments and the military have wanted to send secret messages so that they can have an intelligence advantage. So you have cryptography, you have codes and ciphers. Now, traditionally, they used to send secret keys and keys would go through the post and keys could be intercepted and keys could be copied and thus you might be able to compromise the security, even if you've got a code that's really hard to break. If you've got the keys, the person who invented public key cryptography realised that you don't have to send a key, that there's actually two parts to the system. You've actually got not just the key to lock it up, but you've actually got the lock. So his idea was you can send the padlock out and person can put the message in a box, padlock it shut, and nobody who can open it because only you have the key. You have the private key, the other part of the equation. And so it's really difficult to break. But what they used to do, another way to do this, where you do have a distributed keys, an old system was called a one-time pad. What they did was they used to have a pad of random numbers where someone has rolled dice and actually worked out a genuine list of random numbers. And you have two pads that have the same random number on each page that, that correspond on each pad. One pad goes to your secret agent, one pad stays at the HQ. Now, as long as you use the number on the top that matches for the day or the hour or whatever you've decided or whatever other way you've communicated and then throw it away, there is no way for anyone to really break that code because they have to know that number and only know that number if they've got that pad. So a one-time pad is a really useful way because you're using random numbers that happen to match. Random numbers in sync are very powerful. That's quite uh, like the Enigma code, really, in World War II. Yes. Where, where the Germans would send out the list of starting positions for the Enigma machines, which were encoding. And so if you set your starting positions, then you'll understand the seemingly random output that comes out of the machines, and you can reverse it and decode. That's right. And in fact, at Bletchley Park, where Turing and the others you know, worked on the intelligence during the Second World War to decrypt uh, the Enigma codes, they actually used genuine random numbers they actually had people throwing dice and genuinely doing it because of course pseudo random numbers can be predicted and can be cracked whereas genuine random numbers no one can predict them that's why they're random that's why they're random sure yes so in quantum physics there's a phenomenon called quantum entanglement where you can get uh, photons coming from the same source two photons and their wave that describes their polarity, for example, 
um, whether they're pointing up or down or their spin or all sorts of different properties, can be entangled so that the wave is the same for both of them. No matter how far apart they are, it's the same wave so that, for example, if... Well, these two particles go off in opposite directions from the light source, from your light bulb, for example. They head off and they're entangled. Then one can be, you know, sort of 10 light years off to the west. One can be 10 light years off to the east. And if you want to know whether one's, which ones spin up and which ones spin down, because they have to correspond because they're entangled, if you go look at the east one and you find that it's spin down, you instantly know that the other one is spin up because they are entangled and one always corresponds to the other one. That's right. And I think that the point is that until you observe it, you don't know it's what random. either of them is. It's yeah. random. So people say, well, look, this is useless. You can't send faster than light messages because the only thing that goes across is the randomness. So because it's random, there's no messages. And then in the 90s, some genius realised that if you've got a matched set of random numbers that are matched no matter how far apart they are by this quantum entanglement. You've got the random spins or the random random polarizations and so on. Then you've got one-time pads and one-time pads electronically. That so, so does the, the information... I mean, this is probably a question that physicists are working on. It may be settled, I'm not sure. But if you have the two electrons in different spins and they're... Well, obviously in different spins, but they're 10 light years apart... When you observe one, is that in, does that information travel instantly to the other one or does it travel at the speed of light to the other one? Well, the understanding is that it's instantaneous. That's, that's really interesting. I, I, I don't know enough about uh, nuclear and fundamental physics to exactly put my finger on what the problem with there is. But Well, the problem, I mean, the problem people have is the that it's faster than light and they say, ah, oh, but it's information. Well, it's a random number. So that's not information. So it doesn't break relativity because it's a random number. If you're sending a random number, it's not telling any, the other person anything. The useful thing for this is quantum cryptography, where what you do is you get your paired, entangled pairs of photons, for example, and you can send them down optic fibers. And what you can do then is that you can then interfere one of them with a message, and then you can basically get some classical information, send it along... And then when you interfere the other one, the entangled one at the other end, with that bit of classical information that you sent by at the speed of light by radio or down an optic fibre or by carrier pigeon, whatever method, you will get back your original message. That's right. So that's how the, the encoding sort of works. And if someone intercepts that then uh, and they try and read it, you'll instantly know. Well, this is the thing. That's right. Because it's a quantum phenomenon, it's very fragile. The entanglement can very easily be broken. If there's any sort of contamination from the outside world, the entanglement goes away. So if anyone does try to intercept it, the entanglement simply breaks and they'll get noise instead of a message. The message is gone. The message yeah. is gone. Uh, of course, the other thing you can do, as well as sending messages, of course, you're just sending data, right? You're sending data and it's going slower or at the speed of light, but using a bit of quantum technology to make it secure and identical to the original one well you can do that with any sort of data so they have a phenomenon called quantum teleportation quantum teleportation is very sort of a old star trek thing where you get the information from the original and you destroy the original by extracting that information and interfering it with a quantumly entangled object 
And then you send that information that you've extracted after killing your original Captain Kirk. You send it down the wire or by fax or wherever, and then you reconstruct it at the other end. So it's not faster than light, but you do disappear in one place and reappear in the other without travelling more than by wire in between. There's all sorts of questions that open up with that, whether you come out the same person or not. Technologically, you know, we're quite a long way from that, but I think they've teleported um, photons. And, they've teleported and photons. And particles and that sort of thing. They have, and what they've basically, the theory is that the particles that come out are identical in every way that you could measure to the ones that go in. So if you can't tell the difference down to the quantum level between the Mark West that goes in and the Mark West that comes out, then... There is no functional difference. But the reason why you wouldn't want to travel by it anyway is because something could happen along the way to the signal and then you're dead. Okay. And does do you have to die for this to happen? Could could there be some uh, reader that, that you just stand in a machine and it reads every single thing about you and then recreates you somewhere else? Well, the original theorem is the no-cloning theorem, which well, says that you're not allowed to do that. It sounds a bit science fiction, though. Well, then. it says that... For every quantum value of all the electrons and protons and neutrons and everything that's in your body, and all, they're all unique. Of course. So, so when you read them, you're reading that unique value, and when you recreate them, there can't be two that are exactly the same. Okay. So the, if you're doing it at the quantum level, they're supposed to be completely different. So this is, this is like our entanglement thing, two entangled particles. Yes. They have to be in different spin states, say. That's right. So you couldn't... So maybe maybe you could create a, the anti-Mark West with every particle in a different spin state. Uh, doesn't make any physical sense. Uh, but well, there's now there's now suggestions that maybe no cloning is wrong, and there might be a way to make copies after all. And if they can make copies, what would that be a way you'd want to travel? Interesting, because you could stay here and send a copy. Yes, but then what happens to the copy? I think I saw a, a movie starring Michael Keaton called Duplicity, which he cloned himself so he could, uh, you know play golf and, you know, have have a clone to do all the things for his wife, that sort of thing. Yeah, wow. Who would have thought that would be a visionary film? Well, the problem, of course, is what happens to the property rights? What happens to the relationship rights? Basically, if you haven't gone anywhere, but there's another you that's gone off and done something, he'll want to come back and he'll want all the things you want. And how are you going to share? In The Simpsons, Homer did this. And they killed all the Homers by getting a giant donut. <laughs> and hanging it off a helicopter, and then flying over a big chasm. And all the homers followed the donut and died in the big chasm. So there you mm. go. Cutting-edge stuff. Cutting-edge <laughs> stuff, indeed. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, send us an email. If you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice, Communicating Science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West, and Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. It's a teleporter. The uh, chin heads built it, but I made it work. And I'm the veteran empress. No, really. It uh, scans you, destroys you, transmits you through the projector, and then rebuilds it from the particles up. Hilarity ensues. I think Mr. Heisenberg would object. Hey, you've been doing your homework, but uh, no, 
It's not a problem. See, uh, let's say we got two particles, okay? We'll call them Mona and Lisa. And when they hang out, eventually, they get to be like twins. And no matter how far apart the twins travel, what's true for one is always true for the other. You got a question about Mona? Just ask Lisa. She'll tell you anything you want to know. Quantum entanglement. Fancy name for flashlight. The one entangled pair, the photons will not care when split off to the left and right. When one photon dances, then the other must follow. They, they are locked, locked in sync together forever. Although light years apart, between them beats one heart like an instant messenger. Shut up. 